We'll open your Bibles to Romans 14. Romans chapter 14, we, we're looking at a little mini-series last Sunday and this Sunday in light of, of the, our Independence Day and celebration. We all treasure freedom, and we also know that freedom uh, isn't free. Somebody had to pay for it. And in the case of Christian liberty, in the case of Christian freedom, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who, who paid for that, that freedom. One of the passages that I love, and I'm sure you love as well, is the Scripture says, if the Son shall set you free, you are you're free indeed. And that's why it is so important to remember Romans chapter 14 and understand and apply the passages that we are we are looking at. We actually approached Romans 14 in reverse. We, we looked at the second half last week in the first half. Normally we would have taken it one, two. But I really felt led to, to start with the love portion first. The exercising your responsibility, or exercising your Christian liberty with responsibility, meaning love. We know that our freedom in Christ, our our liberty, there is, a, there is a vertical aspect. You are in Christ Jesus. All of your life, the, it, the, the entire process of sanctification, as you're working out your own salvation in fear and trembling, not working for your salvation, working out the salvation that God has already accomplished, as you're doing that, that sanctification process is happening. It's happening on the platform of Christ. His work, what He's done, justification. You have been justified. You've been declared righteous in God. You're treated as righteous, even though you are unrighteous. And that sanctification process happens. And we have freedom and liberty. And as you exercise that sanctification, we do so around other believers. And those other believers are also working out that process of sanctification. And so what what lubricates those relationships where sanctification of one person bumps into the sanctification of another is is the oil of love. We prefer one another. We love one another. And so that was the second half of Romans 14. You are free in Christ. You have liberty. Paul says that I'm convinced there's nothing unclean in and of itself. But as you participate in those things that are no longer unclean, you do so not just with the attitude of, well, God has set me free, but with the perspective that there are other believers around me. If Christ has freed us from the wrath of God, and, and you may think of it this way, taking the, He's taken the training wheels of the law off of, off of your life, then we should take great care in what we attach to to our liberty. Take great care in what we attach to our, our freedom. Now, we're not talking about attaching things to the gospel, because anything that's attached to the gospel is heresy. Anything that you add to the gospel damns the soul. So we're not talking about adding things to the gospel, or adding things to cause you to be right with Christ or not. It has to do with adding things to your liberty. Purposely restricting your, your liberties and believing that is somehow it's, it's from God. And as Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12 will teach us, 
If Christ has freed us, then we have no right or reason to re-enslave ourselves to certain bondages, nor should we go beyond ourselves and do that to others. As we saw last week, we exercise freedom in, in love for God and others. This week we're going to see our liberty or lack thereof should never be applied to fellow believers. It is, bef- it is for, before the Lord that you stand or fall. Or if you like the pithy statement, don't play master with another man's servant. That would be the title that I would give Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. Don't play master with another man's servant. Augustine had a great set of statements that, that governed Romans 14. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Have you ever wondered why some believers have differing convictions on the same matters? And I can remember being saved for a couple of years and having these conversations with my wife. And, and we, would, we would run into somebody. We'd go to another church, sing in a choir somewhere else, and you'd get a just casual conversation. You don't even have to be close friends with another believer before you'll run into a situation where Christians will go in different directions on matters of preference or conviction or application of principles. But I can remember talking to her and, and, and just being young in the faith, coming home going, you know, I just don't understand. I don't get this. I mean, they don't see the things the way that I see them. What's wrong with them? And that was my default position. What's wrong with them? It never crossed my mind that there might be something wrong with me. It was always what's wrong with them. Have you ever run into those similar situations? How are we to handle that? In the church, what well, Romans 14 is going to is going to say it. Of course, the simple way to handle that is to say, "Well, they're wrong, and and I'm right, and one day they'll wise up and see it our way." And then just gather in cliques or cloisters within the church of like-minded birds of a feather flock together. Right? That's true. Whether it is with Baptist principles or whether it's true with Sanctification principles. One person said this in, God wisely designed the human body so that we can neither pat our own backs or kick ourselves too easily. So in matters where we differ with others on principles, we should remember that. Don't pat yourself on the back too quickly and don't try to kick yourself too quickly either. Now we're not talking about matters that the Bible is clear about. We're not talking about commands or prohibitions, the Bible is very clear. So don't misunderstand Romans 14 and think what Paul is saying is, well, there's really nothing clear. It really doesn't matter what you believe. Let everybody believe whatever they want to believe. Well, that's progressive garbage. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very clearly that there are specific things commanded, specific things prohibited. We live under the authority of Christ in Scripture. He is your Savior, but He's also your Lord. And how do you know what the Lord would command you to do? You go to the Scriptures. So we're not talking about the things that the Bible commands, the thou shalts or the thou shalt nots. We're talking about how principles are applied 
in life. Things that are not commandment-based, where there are no do's or don'ts, that they're not spelled out. Every individual believer must apply those things under the leadership and the illumination of the, of the Spirit. What do believers do, even in the same church, like in Rome, where you differ on these matters of convictions, the convictions of conscience? And what is our responsibility to one another in these, in these matters? Well, Tim has already read for us Romans 14, verses 1 through 2. But in these, I'm sorry, verses 1 through 12. But in those 12 verses, I'm going to give you three reasons you can't condemn your brother in matters of conscience. These will come directly from the text. This is not my assessment of Romans 14. And I'll show you specifically that Paul makes these three points. He gives you three reasons you cannot condemn your brother. He commands us not to condemn brothers and sisters, but gives us three reasons that you can't do that in matters of, of conscience. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Paul says, receive or freely accept, personally bring into your bosom, freely accept, throw the arm of fellowship around one who is, who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And there's the nutshell. That's the, that's the setting of the context of Romans 14. You are to freely accept, you are to throw the arms of fellowship, the one anothering around other believers but not for the purpose of disputing over these matters of opinions. You're not to draw someone in closely in order to despise them or set in condemnation over them. And those are the two things that are happening in the church in, in Rome. And then he gives you the reason not to do that. Look at the end of verse 3. For God has received him. God has received both the one who is tighter in application of his faith and the one who is freer or looser in his application of faith. And there's a tendency there. There's the sin tendency of, of the one who is defined as weak, or that would be the person who's tighter in application of principles. And there is a natural sin pattern that you must, uh, you must fight against if you are freer or, or looser. That's why he gives us these two words. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Here's what not to do. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge. Two completely different words. Him who eats. Let not the, the Christian who believes he has freedom look down in contempt on him who is not free to do that. And let not him who is tighter, more restricted on application of principles, set in the seat of condemnation over the one who feels freedom to do those things. And that's the whole context. Paul's not talking about things where God has clearly, clearly commanded us. Convictions, not commands. Principles, if you will. Application of them. And this is not anything new. I mean, 
I think we talked last Sunday about the worship wars and all of the different things that come through a church and come through periods of, of time. And when I first preached Romans 14 to my own soul, the issues that people were fussing about are completely different even than the ones we, we differ today. I want you to remember that this is not anything new because it's in the Bible. Romans 14 is in the Bible, meaning it was happening in Rome in the first century. And it had to do with, with days and what you ate and what you didn't eat. In the second century, which is the 100s, one of the most important Christian schools in Antioch gave the following to new applicants. A young man asked, what is it I must forsake to avoid worldliness? And here was the answer. Colored clothes, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that's not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and do not eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you're sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against Him who created us, to attempt to improve upon His work. I love that quote. I use it every chance I get. To shave is to lie against Him who created us, to attempt to improve upon His work. Now, the point is not whether you have facial hair or not. The point is, in 100 A.D., in the most prominent Christian school going, these were the ways that they were applying principles. And they were saying, this is what an obedient Christian looks like. Now, we have a Christian school. We have rules over at the Christian school. We're not talking about throwing off rules. But we don't attach those to the gospel. We don't allow students to wear flip-flops. We make students wear a uniform. But we never tell those students that you're going to hell if you wear flip-flops and if you wear a uniform, you're more godly. It's a matter of professional dress or it's the rules of a system. So we're not talking about not drawing angles or applying rules. We're talking about when one believer applies a principle different from another believer. And now they're sitting side by side on the pew. And they get in a lunch conversation over those matters. How are they supposed to handle those kind of things? And Paul clearly says here, under the inspiration of, of the Spirit, that you're not to despise or, or judge because God has received both. In our day, you could give any number of things, whether we wear our hair long or short, highlighted or no color. I already mentioned facial hair. What days do you observe? My uncle doesn't practice Christmas because it's a pagan holiday. He will not have a Christmas tree in his house. We have a Christmas tree and I decorate it every year and love doing it. I grieve when all the decorations are taken down. Do you celebrate Halloween? Your schooling choices. Do you have TV? Cable or not? Do women have to wear dresses to church? Do men have to wear suits to church? What Bible version do you use? Do you eat in restaurants that serve liquor? Do you go to movies? G, PG, PG-13? Do you work on Sundays? What musical style? In all of these matters, they're important. And your conscience is going to instruct you on those matters. And you as an individual will be forced to draw a conclusion. You must take a position because you're working out your salvation. 
You're living in the world. And you are going to be strong in some of those areas and weak in some of those areas. Meaning you're going to be looser, freer to do certain things, and you're going to be tighter. I I just can't do that. And that is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul's not saying don't do that. What he's saying is whenever you run into another believer, they're going to be in a different position sometimes. And what is easy to do is to conclude when you run into a believer who has a different application of that principle is to conclude they're, you're right and they're wrong and then just gather people around you who think just like you. When what unifies us is the gospel of Christ, not whether I have a Christmas tree in my house or my uncle doesn't. We're not talking about the things that don't matter. All of those things do. These are matters left undefined. Matters of preference or conviction or even tradition. And quite frankly, I don't like that. My heart doesn't like that. I would much rather have the hundred things to do or not to do, and there's nothing that falls outside of that area where I have to work the angles, right? I mean, you would love it if it was just laid out. Now, you would never keep the hundred things if you had the hundred things laid out. Here's what Paul in Romans 14 says we would do. We would just make sure that we kept more than the other guy next to us, right? You'll never keep the hundred. That's the whole person purpose of Christ had to come. You'll never keep all the law or the application of the law. And we would love to have the list because we believe whenever it comes to us, God grades on a curve, right? But when it comes to somebody else, bang! Got to get 100% or you're out the door. Paul is giving us these angles. I think I've shared this with you years ago, but there was a story about a pastor who found roadblocks one Sunday morning and he was forced to to skate on the river to get to church. Which he did. He didn't want to miss church. And the only way to get there was the creek or the river that was frozen. But in order to get there, he skated. And when he arrived, the elders of the church were horrified that their preacher had skated on the Lord's Day. And after the service, they held a meeting where their pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not go at all. And finally, one of the elders asked, Did you enjoy it? And the preacher said no. And so they said, okay, it's all right then. As long as you didn't enjoy it, it's okay. God in His wisdom, if you don't hear anything else this morning, listen to this. God in His wisdom has provided that the Christian life is not conformity to an outward list, but it's submission to a person, the living Christ. And His Spirit dwells in you. And the Spirit illuminates the Word. Spurgeon said, I found in my own spiritual life the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. And the reason we're no longer under the law is because it's substandard for a Spirit-indwelt believer. Let me give you the first reason you can't condemn your brothers in matters of conscience. is because you have no reason. They're the same age. You have no reason because you both have the same aim. Now, we've been talking on Wednesday nights. The last two lessons have been about how we serve one another. Enrich 
gave us that powerful illustration of the father helping the son who blew out his hamstring, I think, and helping him get across the finish line. Just finish. Another believer comes alongside you. And Jeff talked to us last Wednesday night about speaking the truth in love. And, and he, was, he basically said to us, we are responsible for each other. So how do you reconcile that to what Paul is saying here? Paul is not saying, don't ever speak to another believer about something where they could fall into sin or it's troubling. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that everyone should have the same aim as a believer. And that is to please Christ. And so you have no reason to apply your conscience to another person because you all have the same aim. Look if you would at verse 4. Who are you to judge another man's servant? And that's such a strong statement. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. And who will make him stand? Who will cause him to stand? God will make him stand. He's echoing what he says there at the end of verse 3. For God has received him. Don't receive him for the person, for the purpose of evaluating his scruples or his opinions. Because God's already received him weak and strong. And then he kind of comes off the top rope here. And says, who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? evaluating. What happens in my heart whenever I see another Christian doing something that's not specifically com, uh, prohibited? It's not something that, that I can go back to a verse and say, oh, God says don't do that, but it's something that I won't do. It's a matter of conscience. I'm going, really? I, mean, I thought they were spiritual. I mean, that's what happens in the heart. That's what Paul is talking about here. And you had believers say from Jewish background that had certain dietary requirements, they kept certain days because God had told them in the Old Covenant. You had pagans who were saved from drunken feasts and idolatry and all of these believers come together and they're converted and some felt free in some areas and others and others didn't. To judge means to draw conclusion and render condemnation to to despise means to hold them in contempt. It would go something like this. This is what's happening here. The Gentile would say, just look at that Jewish brother. I mean, still keeping the Sabbath. Doesn't he know we're free in Christ? How silly that is. He needs to understand his theology better. God could never use him. He doesn't even understand the gospel or his salvation. Or the flip side. The Jew would say, just look at that Gentile brother eating that meat that may have been sacrificed to an idol. This is the temple of Satan. Even the market is worldly. I wonder if he's really even saved. They were evaluating each other on matters that God had left to the, to the conscience. And I doubt there's a lot of Jews and Gentiles in here, but there's people here that have been saved from different backgrounds, different situations, different times, different generations... You know, we're all at different stages of, of maturity. And you don't have to evaluate another brother on those matters because we both have the same aim. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Now look at what he says at the end here. Let each be fully convinced 
in his own mind. Now, that's important. You have two people here who see things completely different about a non-commanded matter. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day exactly the same. But both of those individuals, the person who esteems one day above another and the person who esteems every day alike, they have the same aim. And their aim is to be fully convinced in their own mind. To be fully convinced in their own mind. That doesn't mean to psych yourself up to believe what you want to believe. It means to be fully convinced in your own mind that you're pleasing unto the Lord in this matter. That's what it means. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. This is not saying, oh well, it really doesn't matter, God will forgive me. These are matters that you've been fully convinced about. That means that you've been confronted in your conscience. You, you've been convinced that that position or decision would bring glory to God. Your target is to please God. The person who keeps one day above another, their target, their aim is to please God. The person who views every day the same, their target is to please God. A Christian's target, regardless, is always to please God. And so... That's the matter here. The aim of every believer, regardless of the conscience, in your mind, you must be fully persuaded it's okay. And to the Lord. That's what verse 23 says. Remember? If you look at verse 23, we talked about this last Sunday. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. As someone being fully persuaded that it is okay to do it. So you don't need to play master with another man's servant. You don't need to apply your conscience to another believer because every believer should have the same aim. They're convinced in that matter that they're pleasing to the Lord. Now, there may be discipling relationships. There may be situations where pastors or or more mature believers come to other believers and say, have you really thought about this? I mean, here is an angle. This, this You may have somebody who's naive. You may have somebody who somebody who hasn't really thought deeply about the principle and they're just bumping along and you know that they're going to get devoured because they really haven't thought deeply about this matter. That's different from what Paul is talking about here. You may say to them, hey, I'm not telling you how your conscience should should relegate this matter, but you really need to think about this. This could really be a train wreck for you. This is a dangerous thing. The Bible warns against the way this could end up. Now you're bringing them in the right orbit. You're bringing them back to consider a matter in their own conscience before the Lord. Are you really, have you really wrestled with this? Is your aim really to please the Lord or is your aim to do whatever your heart wants to do? The aim of every believer, regardless of their conscience, is to, is to please the Lord. Let me give you the second, the second reason. God says you can't condemn your brother in matters of conscience is you have no right. You have no reason. You both should have the same aim. You also have no right because you both have the same same Lord. Look at what he says here in verse 6. Notice how he, he quantifies being fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. And he who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, 
and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are we're the Lord's. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself. None of us lives to himself. The great transaction that's taken place for someone who is a Christian is God has taken the credit or the account of your sin and He's placed it to the debt of Christ. And Christ has paid that debt. That's a great transaction, isn't it? <laughs> no more will you stand before God in your, in your sin. And on the flip side, the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. But in that transaction, there's something that's changed as far as lordship. You no longer sit on the throne of your heart. The, 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 the essence of the sin nature, what you're born with, what causes a two-year-old or a one-year-old to look at mommy and daddy when mommy and daddy says no, and they go ahead and do it anyway, is, is a nature of rebellion. And that rebellion is not against mommy and daddy. Ultimately, that rebellion is against God. We want to rule. We want the right to direct our own lives. And the great transaction that happens in salvation, yes, is your sins are paid for, and yes, you get the credit of righteousness, but you now relinquish control of your life. You're no longer king of your own heart. King Jesus sits upon the throne. And that includes matters of the conscience. The reason that you can't apply your conscience to another believer is because they have the same Lord that you do. You're not their master. Christ is. But the reason that you should really wrestle with these things and make sure that you're thinking deeply and hardly about these matters of principle is because you have a Lord. And He cares about you. And He rules your life and He gave you the Word in order to protect and preserve. You have no right there's the same Lord. You have no reason because you're the same aim. You're both to be fully convinced before the Lord. You have no right because you're in the same Lord. And verse 4 is very forceful, as I said. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. I tried to think of a good example And here's the best one I could come up with. Maybe you can give me a better one even after service. What would you do if you were having company over and and your wife told you that she was having your favorite meal and when the company came, the, the man who was part of that company came and sat at the head of your dinner table and began to tell your wife and children what to do and told her to take back what she put on the on the table, that wasn't his favorite meal. Um, he wanted something different. And then maybe begin to criticize your wife about how she cleaned house or something else. How would that make you feel? Well, I'll tell you how it would make my, me feel. They wouldn't stay in my house very long. Maybe they begin to criticize or otherwise be, you'd be upset, right? Why? Because they don't have any right to do that. You're in my house. That's my wife. That's my kids. That's my favorite dinner. That's my chair. Now, I'm not, I'm not giving you a real example. 
But you don't have any right to do that. And Paul is not advocating here this me, myself, and I that comes so easily to us as, as believers. He's talking about the Lord. You're the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. That person sitting beside you is the Lord's servant. You're a fellow servant. One slave doesn't have the right to tell another slave what to do and sat in mastery over them because both slaves have the same master, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're caring for somebody, if you're going in love, that will be evident. If you are hunting for grace in somebody else's life rather than sniffing for sin, that will be evident. If you're going to somebody else in care and in humility and love because maybe you've been there and you see something bad getting ready to happen in their life, they're not going to feel that. They're not going to feel like you're sitting in lordship over them, commanding them what to do. They're going to feel like you're a caring brother or sister. But that's not what's happening in Rome. And that's not what happens a lot of times in our own lives. We very easily default to the position of I'm right, everybody else is wrong. And then we move from I'm right and everybody else is wrong to I'm king, I'm lord, and let me tell you why you're wrong. And you move into the condemnation or otherwise. I mean, over and over and over. We live to the Lord. We die to the Lord. It's for the Lord that He keeps the day. It's for the Lord they don't keep the day. Verse 10. Why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? He brings us back to the same principle. He says, so if you're a fellow slave, a fellow servant, what right do you have to pass judgment on another servant, especially in an area not defined or an area governed by the conscience? When they've submitted that conscience to God, their aim is to please God. And they're in an honest heart doing it as unto the Lord. Besides, we can't evaluate somebody else properly. We can't even evaluate our own selves properly. That's why you must stay submitted to the Scriptures. That's why you must avoid adding anything to the Scriptures or taking away anything from the Scriptures. It's the reason that the text has to reign. Because 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4 says, Paul says, but, it, it, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself or I know nothing against myself and yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Paul says, I'm going to wait until the Lord Jesus comes even in my own evaluation of myself because the final conclusion will be rendered then. Right now, I'm just walking in submission. Do you think you're going to be shocked, surprised on the day in which you stand before the Lord? Whenever He delivers rewards or you stand before the beam of seat? Now, don't be too hard on yourself. I would say you're probably going to be surprised by rewards that you get that you didn't think you were going to. Do you remember when Jesus is talking about, and He's talking to the, to, to the individual in the Gospels, and He says... You know, you gave a cup of water in my name, and the guy says, when did I do that? Right? There's an evidence of it. You're going to stand before the Lord one day, and He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, for this. And you're going to go, I did that? Wow! And I'd say that I'm going to be shocked on other on the other side. Where I think I'm justified in certain things. I think I'm right before the Lord, and God is going to reveal to me that my motives were wrong, I was self-deceived, or some other matter. If that's going to happen to me as an individual, 
not me as a pastor, but me as a Christian, you as a Christian, when you stand before the Lord, that should be enough to make sure that we're not standing in contempt or condemnation in matters of conscience over other believers. Let me give you the third one really quick. quick. You have no reason. There's the common aim. You have no right. You have the same position. You two are a servant, not Lord. And the third reason is you have no role. It's common judgment. That's where Paul ends this whole thing. Look at the end of verse 10. But why? Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? Both sins, the weak and strong are there. For we shall all, and I brings everybody together, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. All is no exceptions. Each is individual, personally. You won't stand as a family. You'll stand as an individual. And that covers everyone in every case. Here's why you don't want to be careless about your convictions. Why you should be convinced about them. Why you should think hard and work these angles. Because you will stand before the Lord one day and give an account. Not just to the commands and not just to the prohibitions but how you actually work that principle as a believer. And God is going to evaluate you and evaluate me based upon did we have the aim of pleasing Christ and did we act as a servant? Did we truly understand we're bought with a price? We're not our own? It's also why we don't need to judge others. God will do it. Have you ever had to leave something like that in your Christian life? Man, I mean, it just gnawed on you. Maybe not a matter of conscience, but where somebody truly did the wrong thing and hurt you, and you had to say, you know what? I mean, I can't fix it. I can't pay it back. You have to let it go. And the way you let it go is you say, the Lord's going to have to deal with it. The Lord's going to have to deal with this matter. The Lord's going to have to deal with that person, that sin, whatever it is. Do you think the Lord will deal with it? This is a promise that the Lord will deal with it. And He'll deal with it perfectly. And He'll deal with it completely. In another passage, that's why the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. You don't have to worry about God writing everything. He will write it all one day, and the scales will be perfect whenever He does it. Look at how Paul concludes this whole thing in verse 12. So then, because of all of that, each of us shall give an account of himself. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. At the moment that's referenced in verse 11, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, at that moment, there's an accountability for all men and for believers at that moment We'll stand before God and be evaluated by a perfect judge and a perfect standard, not for our sin. Everything unknown will be revealed based on the commanded things and those that we were fully convinced unto His glory. And there will be a rendering. And you will be rewarded or you will suffer loss.
You can't condemn your brother in matters of conscience. You have no reason. There's a common aim. You have no right. There's a common position. And you have no role. There's a common judgment. And as believers, we all live under, live before God under the authority of His Word and submission to His... Blah! Into submission in the Spirit. But I want you to go back up and look at verse 11. For it is written, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. Notice, he's quoting that verse, applying it to believers in Rome. But notice the wider context. Every knee. Believer and unbeliever shall bow, and every tongue, believer and unbeliever, shall confess to God. And the other passage that further informs us says, shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will have Jesus Christ as your Lord one day, whether you want Him or not. It's much better to freely accept Him as Lord now than to have to confess that He's Lord under your condemnation one day. There's coming a day when all men will stand before God and give an account. Christians, it will be for rewards. For unbelievers, for sinners, it will be the great white throne where the books will be opened. And you will be shown in those books your works and you will be shown your just condemnation, and then you will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not under your salvation, but under your condemnation. And what you will be saying in that moment is Jesus is Lord, He was Savior, and I denied Him, and my works are are right before me, and it is just in what God is getting ready to do. And then that grieving statement in Revelation. They're cast into the lake of of fire. Will you be in Christ on that day? You can be in Christ on that day. The Christian life is a blessed thing in relationship to God. It's not easy. There are certain things in your life that make it more difficult. But you will have a guide and you will have an authority and you will have a word and it will instruct you in all matters. Or will you be outside of Him on that one day? Be in Christ, not outside of Christ. Bow the knee now, not then. And if you have bowed the knee to Christ, recognize that You're just a fellow bond slave like everyone else trying to please the same Lord. Amen.